떠냐 에스더냐 현대전회 이수사하더냐 안나와 대화도기 넌환다과는다 현논 션스과 드리어닷 넌환디현라샤다 이수사하더냐 Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. And today we come to the end of the third of the Leatherstocking Tales, The Pathfinder. So if you're just joining us, I urge you to go back and, and check out my earlier four episodes on the Pathfinder or go back to the beginning of this series on the Leatherstocking Tales and, and start from the beginning as I did. Um, now, once again, uh, this is just on the publication of these novels. I've been going over this again and again, but this is kind of for the benefit of new listeners. The Pathfinder was published in 1840, one year before The Deerslayer. And these form a couple of novels published around the same time period that take up the early life of a letter stocking in a bit more detail. It's set chronologically after the events of The Last of the Mohicans, which was the second of these novels to be written, The Pathfinder being the fourth of the novels to be published. So um, basically, the story that Cooper wrote begins with leather stocking already very old an old man and his the first and the third novels are really about the end of his life the second novel he wrote last of the mohicans about his early life right and then he didn't talk about uh this character natty bumpo leather stocking for about i think 15 years and he comes back to it in 1840 in 1841 and writes these two novels the deerslayer and the pathfinder um and they're not one the deerslayer set way earlier the, the earliest of these novels in the setting is set in the 18 1740s and then the pathfinder was set a little bit after last of the mohicans around the same time and they just kind of cover aspects of his life that weren't explored in in the other stories yet chronologically you'd read them in a different order that's how i've been reading them i've been reading them starting with the deer slayer so this is the third we've looked at but actually it would have been the fourth published okay so the pathfinder it begins with the meeting of two parties of of guides the pathfinder chingachgook his delaware companion and now pathfinder is natty bumpo hawkeye the deer slayer that the same character with different names he's with it with chingachgook his indian comrade longtime friend and a freshwater sailor named jasper western they meet another group made up of mabel Don dunham her uncle cap a, a, a saltwater sailor and two tuscarora guides and these two Tuscarora guides are Arrowhead and his wife, Dew of June. Now, Dew of June is going to emerge as one of the most compelling characters in this, in this novel, in my opinion. They travel to Fort Oswego on Lake Ontario, but they're ambushed by Iroquois. They narrowly escape due to the heroism of Jasper, Chingachgook, and Pathfinder. They arrive at the fort, and they learn that Mabel's father, Sergeant Dunham, wants Pathfinder to marry Mabel. Yet, she has other suitors. Jasper's fallen in love with her, and there's also a Scottish man in the fort named Muir, who the commander of the fort thinks would make a better candidate for marrying Mabel. After a shooting contest, which is won by Jasper, 
And this is the, he wins because Pathfinder throws the contest to his friends. This is uh, the first of a couple of times in this novel where Pathfinder moves out of the way of the younger uh, and more educated Jasper. After this shooting contest, the, uh, a party is going out to the Thousand Islands to relieve a camp of British soldiers that are stationed there in a secret base with the goal of kind of harassing and intercepting French supply routes down the St. Lawrence River and into Lake Ontario. On the way, doubts are spread about Jasper's loyalty due to a, a letter claiming that he's a, basically he's, he's working for the French. Arrowhead and Dew of June, who earlier escaped, are captured, but then escape again. Jasper is blamed for this and confined. The ship, though, is lost in the, in the lake under the command of Cap and in desperate straits during a storm. Jasper is returned to command, and he successfully helps the ship ride out the storm. They move back on course. During a stop on shore, Pathfinder proposes to Mabel, but only achieves only ends up embarrassing himself. They travel onto a secret British base called Station Island. A handful of people who are left behind after a group of them go off to harass French um, supply routes are ambushed. Mabel survives by hiding in a blockhouse thanks to a warning by Du of June, who arrived to basically help her friend. Muir and Cap are captured. They're the only other survivors of the camp. She holds out a few days when Pathfinder arrives. He fails to warn the British troops who are also returning of the ambush and they fall into a trap. Pathfinder, Cap, a wounded Dunham, escape into the blockhouse. Muir, who has been captured but is actually a traitor, uh, you know by this point in the novel that he's basically the one who's been feeding information to the French, he tries to negotiate a surrender. This fails, and an Indian attack also fails, leaving two of the assailants dead. And that those are the events I cover in the previous four four episodes. And so this brings us to the conclusion of The Pathfinder. So chapter 25. So just as our characters are left in the blockhouse under siege, Jasper comes back from Fort Oswego with the Scud, with the ship. He had previously left to take the old troops that were there back to the fort, and then he's coming back. He comes back, uh, and he's told by Chingachgook about the situation on Station Island, and then Jasper moves into action, and he quickly turns the tide on the Indian assailants and the French. He does this first by securing the boats so the Indians can't get off the island, and then he starts shooting cannons. He, I think Chingachgook gave him Killdeer, which is Pathfinder's rifle, um, and Chingachgook has a little rifle, and they're just kind of shooting the Indians too. So all of this basically disrupts the attack, forces the Indians into a surrender. It's really well told. It's, it's a fairly interesting part of the novel because a lot of the narrative is told from within inside the blockhouse. So you have Pathfinder inside the blockhouse hearing these noises. And he says, well, that's Killdeer. Or that's Chingachgook's voice or the Great Serpent's voice. So he's able to hear what's going on and, and kind of report on what's happening just from sounds. Um, but uh, eventually... It's, it's a very quick battle, and the Indians are forced to surrender. The surrender terms are worked out by Muir, not Jasper. Jasper knows French, but Muir is the one who actually does the translation for them. The French commander there, there's only the one Frenchman, Sanglier, he basically agrees to return the British prisoners. I think there was half a dozen or so who had survived the ambush, and so they're returned. They agree to surrender their weapons and leave. And the Indians are forced, are told to go off, 
And they're left with just one oar so they can steer towards Canada. I thought that was kind of funny because I don't know why Goo couldn't just canoe from the other side to get back. But the idea is with just one oar, they could only get to Canada. Here's what Cooper writes. As soon as Jasper was made acquainted with the terms and preliminaries as he had so far observed as to render it safe for him to be absent, he got the scud underway. And running down to the point where the boats had stranded, he took them in tow again and made a few stretches, brought them into the leeward passage. Here all the savages instantly embarked when Jasper took the boats in tow a third time and running off before the wind, he soon set them adrift quite a mile to leeward of the island. The Indians were furnished with but a single oar on each boat to steer with, the young sailor knowing well that by keeping before the winds they would land on the shores of Canada in the course of the morning. All right, so that's that's chapter twenty-five, basically a resolution to the main kind of action, the the the, the violence of the novel. Well, there's a little bit more, but that's um, you know the fate of the of the base is resolved. Then we get to chapter twenty-six. All of the, of course, Station Island at this point would be useless as a secret base anymore because it's revealed. So if the British want to keep raiding French supplies, they're going to have to find a different of the Thousand Islands to, to rest on, which I suppose won't be too hard. Chapter 26. So all the Indians have departed except for Arrowhead and Dew of June. And now Captain Sanglier is also there to basically write up like the paperwork on the surrender that has to be done. The chapter, though, begins with an interesting contrast between Muir and Pathfinder. Cooper spends quite a lot of time here on the character of, of Muir. Quote, the manner of the quartermaster had that air of super rotary courtesy about it, which almost invariably denotes artifice. And while physiognomy and phrenology are but lame science at best, and perhaps lead to as many false as right conclusions, we hold that there is no more infallible evidence of insincerity of purpose short of overt acts than a face that, that smiles when there's no occasion, and the tongue which is out of measure smooth. I'll stop there. You, you know these people, right? The salesman, the, the one who, is, or the politician, maybe, not to begrudge any salespeople, but the, the politician. The one who smiles uh, awkwardly and out of place when there's not a joke being told. That's that, that's usually a sign that there's some other goal there. Continuing on. Muir had such of this manner in common mingled with his apparent frankness that his Scottish intonation of voice, Scottish accent, and Scottish modes of expression were singularly adapted to s sustain. He owed to his performance indeed to that long-excited deference to Luddy and his family. For, while the major himself was much too acute to be dope, of one so much his inferior in real talents and attainments. Most people are accustomed to make liberal concessions to the flatterer, why, even while they distrust his truth and are perfectly aware of his motives. So, these are all the things that Pathfinder is not. Pathfinder is described as simple, as the quartermaster was practiced. Well, this is, again, telling us that he's the deceiver. And you should have known this by now if you're paying attention in the novel, but it is fully revealed in this chapter. Muir takes command as kind of the ranking officer that's not dying. Uh, I guess Sergeant Dunham would have been higher up, but he, you know, is, is dying. So someone had to be commanded. Muir takes command. Muir does, at this point, though, talk to Pathfinder, thanking him for his bravery and even giving Mabel to him. Now, Muir's been kind of thrown in there as a suitor for Mabel, someone that maybe Mabel could marry. But he'd been married three times before, and Mabel didn't really care for him. So he was never a really serious uh, wrench in the, in the love triangle. 
And here he even kind of gives Mabel off to Pathfinder. And Pathfinder's surprised, thinking, you know, I thought I had a rival in you. And I think how this works is basically the real rival is someone Pathfinder never suspected, but his good friend Jasper. Now, what Muir does do, though, is to put Jasper up as the patsy for the traitor and demands his arrest as a traitor. It's not a really serious claim. I mean, Jasper came in and saved the day. He was the great hero. So I don't know how far this would go. And it doesn't really matter because instantly when Arrowhead hears this, he expected Muir to be basically a man and to take responsibility for his failure and for his betrayal. And so Arrowhead in anger basically stabs uh, Muir, killing him right there. He runs off into the woods. Chingachgook follows the fleeing Arrowhead and scalps him off stage. I think most of the, all the scalpings are done basically off stage. I think in Last of the Mohicans, there was moments where you see scalping being done right in front of us. But usually Chingachgook runs off into the woods, does fighting. No one sees it. He comes back with scalps. That, that happens again here. With Muir and Arrowhead dead, Sangular simply announces that Muir was the traitor all along and is able to prove it by opening Muir's purse, which has these French gold coins. Muir also wrote the letter to Duncan about Jasper, announcing that, you know, he's a traitor. And also he's the one who located, gave his, the position of the fort away to the Indians and the French. So that basically resolves the whole betrayal plotline. Chapter 27. Now, at this point in the novel, the only really thing left to be worked out is the fate of Sergeant Dunham and the marriage of the daughter Mabel and to a lesser extent, Dew of June. Now there's only really the two suitors, Pathfinder and Jasper, and Pathfinder doesn't know that Jasper has eyes for, for Mabel. He's a bit oblivious to this. Cooper decides to give us some of Muir's backstory here, explaining his treachery. Muir is revealed to have been after money all along, uh, and he, it's also revealed that he's kind of greedy about women too, that he would marry any woman. And the reason he had three wives is basically he's presented as very fickle and capricious about about women. Quote, the disposition of Muir towards the sex was a natural weakness, and he would have and he would have married Mabel or anyone else who would accept his hand, but his admiration of her was in, was in a great degree feigned, in order that he might have an excuse to accompany the party without sharing the responsibility of his defeat or incurring the risk of having no other strong or seemingly sufficient motive. So there, there's a few things in there. One is that basically that his attraction to Mabel was always a facade to help him you know, be a traitor. But that also that he just kind of goes through women kind of randomly. He's he's just kind of like, he's, he's a bit girl crazy. And we already knew he'd be a poor companion for Mabel anyway. So there's not much new we learn here, but it does put some closure to this character, Muir, and his motivations. A much less complex and interesting villain than, than Makwa, for instance. Uh, but I do think, I do like how Cooper in this novel goes into the tensions within the British military between the Scottish and the English soldiers and the feeling among many of the Scots that their that their land was taken from them and that they no longer have that kind of position of authority that they had when the Stuarts were were kings. I suppose that the the transition to the Han, uh, to the Hanoverian lines was more an issue than the United Kingdom maybe. Maybe a historian who knows more about that could could give me a little bit of detail. Because, of course, like until, I guess, 1715 or so, the Stuarts ruled um, Britain. Now, for most of that period, most of the 
17th century, at least except for the period of the Commonwealth, you had you had two separate kingdoms, right? You had the Stuarts ruled Scotland and they ruled England. And they had two different parliaments and things. These were unified, I think it's during the reign of Queen Anne. So under a Stuart, these were unified. But of course that when that when Anne didn't leave any 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 children, the line passed to the Hanoverians instead of going back to the other branches of the Stuart line, and this led to a few uprisings in Scotland. One of them, which is mentioned directly in this text, the the effort to uh, put up the Pretender, which I, th I think was James the Third, would have been James the Third, or at least called James the Third by the by the Scottish loyalists to the Stuart line. Anyway, I, that's just why I, I'm just saying I, I like what he does with the Scottish soldiers here. It's a, it's a bit a shame that he makes them a bit nasty from time to time. Uh, I would have, you know, they're all, I mean, now we don't really know. He's just kind of there temporarily. Duncan, he's fine, I guess, but I mean, he's not really villainous, but Muir is. So I don't know, having a more positive representation of, a, of the Scottish side in the British Empire would have been uh, a nice addition, I suppose. Now Jasper and Pathfinder begin to talk and Pathfinder comes back to his old theme of gifts. And what they're talking about here is basically the admission that Pathfinder will marry Mabel and that he has his father's consent. And Jasper hears this for the first time. He didn't really know this and he's a, he's he sucks it in. So he, he congratulates his friend. He does what he's supposed to do as the younger friend and you know someone who's very loyal to pathfinder he says oh that, that's great news or whatever but he is feeling broken inside by this but even at this point pathfinder admits that he doesn't really feel he has the quote-unquote gifts to be a spouse he says quote i can kill a deer or even a mingo at need with any man on the lines or i can follow the forest path with a true an eye or read the stars when no one else understands them no doubt no doubt mabel will have venison enough and fish enough and pigeons enough but will she have knowledge enough and will she have ideas enough and pleasant conversation enough when life comes to drag a little and each of us begins to pass for our true value and here's the opening where jasper could say well I have those things that you think she's lacking, but instead he just says, like, you know, she'll be happy and, and your value is enough, Pathfinder. Okay, and then this brings us to the long death scene. Uh, this death scene is very long. It, it extends, it's been going on for a while, of course, but the, the final death scene where the people are around holding the guy's hand and listening to his final words, it goes on for like a chapter and a half. It's kind of worthy of a Wagner opera over where those death scenes could take 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Everyone gets their say, and it's all really fun and interesting to read. Cap talks about death at sea. So kind of everyone brings their own experiences to it. And, you know, hearing Cap and, and Dunham have their last talk is, is interesting. They are family. Um, he talks about death and loss and seeing how soldier, sailors at sea deal with, with death and face death. Pathfinder talks about his idea of the afterlife, which is something we get a lot of in the Deerslayer. A little bit in Last of the Mohicans, but it hasn't been a big emphasis of this story yet. But, you know, quote, I have not been Christianized by the Morvarians, like so many of the Delaware, it is true, but I hold to Christianity and white gifts. With me, it is 
uncredible for a white man not to be a Christian as it is for a redskin not to believe in his happy hunting grounds. Indeed, after allowing for differences in traditions and some variations about the manner in which the spirit will be occupied after death, I hold that a good Delaware is a good Christian, though we never saw a more variant. And a good Christian is a good Delaware, so far as nature is concerned. The serpent and I talk about these matters often, and he has a hankering after Christianity. And then, oh, but one thing on this, he, he talks about this Christianization of Chingachgook throughout these three novels a little bit. When you finally get to read The Pioneers, which I started doing, which I started doing for the next series, you've, you learn that he has been Christianized and he takes this name, Indian John. So he takes his Christian name. So the, these, Cooper knew that this character would become Christian when he says this. Um, Pathfinder also talks about his old, his old idea of the Church of the Wild, which I always really like. It's got an almost ecological um, taint to it. There's a bit of spiritualism in the character of Pathfinder. Although he asserts to be a Christian, he, he has this almost henotheistic idea of, of God existing in the wild and in nature and all, and all that. And it comes up a lot in these novels. So chapter 28 comes, Duncan's, Dun, not Duncan, Dunham, still not dead, saves his final words for his daughter. And we're very given a very interesting moment where Jasper is gifted Mabel by accident by her father. So Dunham thought he was sitting next to Pathfinder and he's like, I'm going to bring you two together. And he's going to like grab their hands and hold them together. And the hand he grabs is Jasper and he gives it to Mabel. He thinks he's given it to Pathfinder to Mabel able to Pathfinder, but in fact, she's doing it to Jasper. Uh, his words and his actions aren't in sync, but that's because he's dying and he's delirious and he doesn't really know what's going on. But anyways, finally, finally Dunham dies after pages and pages of, of talking about it. So Pathfinder goes back to Jasper and talks more about the marriage of Mabel to Jasper. And he realizes that Mabel and Jasper have fallen, or at least that Jasper has fallen in love with Mabel. He, he maybe doesn't really realize Mabel's feelings yet. Mabel's feelings are a bit are introduced and dealt with, but they're dealt with a bit as an afterthought to what Jasper's feelings are. But there's a moment where, you know, I guess Pathfinder can be a bit dense at times. He he's not the best with emotions and reading people because he kind of does live out in the woods and he spends a lot of time with Indians, so he's not really good at reading white people all the time. This is maybe one reason he. You know, like he's able to identify Makwa instantly as a traitor in Last of the Mohicans, but he never really figures out that Muir is a traitor. And Cooper gives us a whole speech saying how you could tell Muir was a traitor just by the way he smiles and the way he looks. Things that Pathfinder never himself realized. Um, so, you know, things that are obvious to the reader are not obvious to, to him. And this is one of those things. So, anyways, Wind, he finally does realize, though, and it, it's something that Jasper says about his like he says i love mabel and i love you and he's like oh i know you love mabel like you love us both as friends and then he kind of responds to that and this is the moment where pathfinder realizes that he's been mistaken about jasper's feeling towards this woman um and we get then we when we finally do get to mabel's feelings about this we find out how naive pathfinder really was and could be on matters of love not just about human emotions or white people's emotions in general but specifically on matters of love because he, he sort of talks to Jasper and says, well, if if you guys love each other, you must have talked about it and been open about it. And Jasper says, well, no, I could sort of tell she has feelings for me based on her how she looks and how she interacts with me. And 
you know, P- Pathfinder was a bit oblivious to that aspect of, of courtship, the kind of the unspoken side to it. Now, everything would sort of be resolved at this point, if not for the fact that Jasper refused to accept Mabel's hand. Uh, so he doesn't want to steal a wife from his friend who he loves. And Pathfinder obviously doesn't want to take Mabel from Jasper either. So there's an impasse here where both surrender, both sides surrender their future uh, happiness to their friend. Pathfinder simply suggests that they work it out after their funeral. So chapter 29 is set a few days later after the funeral. The ship, the Scud, is ready to return to, to, to Oswego, to Fort Oswego. But Pathfinder wants to deal with Mabel's future, and I, I think they actually are doing it on the boat traveling to the Scud. And before finally leaving the island and leaving the area, he wants to resolve this. And Pathfinder takes command of the negotiations, in which are he kind of gives his formal surrender to Jasper, and he gives a really long speech. I, I think it's the longest kind of monologue in the entire book up to this point. You have these in Last of the Mohicans and the Deerslayer a bit, but this is, I think, the longest in Pathfinder, at least one of the longest. It goes on for four or five pages where Pathfinder is just revealing his argument about why Jasper should be with, with Mabel. What it really comes down to is that Jasper's a better match. He's young and he's educated and he's a better foundation for a happy life for her. So, and they agree to it. They finally are convinced and they agree to it. And he sent, he stays behind. He sends them off onto the schedule. He stays behind on the island. And we get a, this final look as the scud sails away, which is quite beautiful. Quote, Pathfinder made a sign for his friends to depart, and he stood leaning on his rifle until the canoe had reached the side of the scud. Mabel wept as if her heart would break, nor did her eyes once turn from the open spot of the glade where the form of the Pathfinder was to be seen, until the cutter had passed a point that completely shut out the island. When last in view, the sinewy frame of this extraordinary man was as motionless as if it were a statue set up in the solitary place to commemorate the scenes of which had lately been this, his sight and witness. Now that's that's from kind of Mabel's point of view, but early in chapter 30, we get the same scene from Pathfinder's point of view. Quote, Pathfinder had stood leaning on his rifle in the attitude described in the last chapter as a long time after the scud had disappeared. The rigidity of his limbs seemed permanent, and none but a man accustomed to put his muscles to the severest proof could have maintained that posture with its marble-like inflexibility for so great a length of time. At length he moved away from the spot, motion of the body being preceded by a sigh that seemed to heave up from the very depths of his bosom. So his, his rigidity... Pathfinder's rigidity is based on his immense and horrible sorrow he's feeling over this loss of Mabel. This is a life-changing event for him. But from far away, he just seems to be the stoic, uh, nearly divine per figure. Um, but when you, get, when you get this inward look at him, which Cooper gives us at the very next chapter, it's actually he can't move because of the deep sorrow he's feeling. So that, that, I guess that takes it. We can just jump into the final chapter of the book, chapter 30. He, he turns to the Indians remaining with him. So, well, it's due of June. I think Chingachgook has kind of went off as he's apt to do. So it's just Pathfinder and due of June on this island. Jew of Dune has also suffered a great loss. So we have two characters who have lost the one they love the most and the one they're most committed to. And they've lost a marriage, essentially. They both lost a marriage. Um, so they're in very similar places as characters. And Pathfinder has a very, very touching conversation with Dew of June. Uh, 
you know, she's such a, a sad figure throughout all of this where she's never really had any, she never has a moment where she's able to be really free except when she's warning Mabel and out of this, she loses a husband. It, it's had she not stuck up for Mabel, she probably wouldn't have lost Arrowhead. The whole plot of the novel would have been different. So it, it's, a, it's a rather sad uh, moment for us to, to sit here with Dew of June as she's mourning her husband. And we also know how cruel Arrowhead was to her, how he threatened her life. And yet she really has no other life to look forward to or nowhere else to really go. And so all she has is, is Pathfinder, who is one of her enemies. In fact, she says some nasty things about Pathfinder earlier in the book, you know, calling him a murderer and someone who's killed her people and, and all these things. And Pathfinder declares his friendship for her. And he talks to her about the afterlife and, and says, you know, do you believe in, in the Manitou? Quote, listen to one who has a long acquaintance with the red nature, though he has a white birth and white gifts. When the Manitou of the pale faces wishes to produce good in the pale face heart, he strikes it with grief. For it is in our sorrows, June, that we look with the truest eyes into ourselves and with the furthest sighted eyes too, as respects light, as respects right. The great spirit wishes you well. And he has taken away the chief, lest you should be led astray by his wily tongue, and get to be a mingo of your own disposition, as you were already in your company. And so his message to Du of June is: This is your moment to be your own person again. And you, you're finally freed from this somewhat evil man. And she actually defends Arrowhead's nature, and he says, "Well, yeah, he has good characters, but he also has bad characters. But now you're liberated from both, and it's." It's quite a nice moment, I think. And just the fact, realizing how much both of these characters have lost, if you read that with this passage with that in mind, it's it's quite touching. And emotionally fulfilling, too. It's it's not something you, normally, you often say about these novels because they are so ponderous and detail-oriented and talky at times. But... And it takes a bit of, you got to read it as someone in the 19th century may have read these novels, but you actually do start to feel the emotion. And you can start to, it's, there's moments like this where you appreciate why Cooper was such a beloved novelist during his life. Now, for a month, Pathfinder lives with Dew of June as she mourns. She refuses to leave the site of her husband's death. He cares for her. He hunts for her. He provi provides meals for her. And he actually doesn't even... He lives on an island over because he doesn't want to seem to be too close to this woman or taking advantage of Dew of June. So he lives on a neighboring island, yet he's always watching her and caring for her. For So after a month, Chingachgook arrives. And this is never really addressed that Chingachgook killed Arrowhead. I don't know if, it, if within Indian culture this is something that's, you know, addressed. It, it's never really addressed by Cooper that... Arrowhead's murderer is traveling with them now, but it's the three together. Pathfinder tells Jew of Dune that she must finally leave the island after a month, partially because the wet winters, it's changing to winter and they have to get to um, a better location where they can live out the winter. They go to Fort Oswego. When there, Pathfinder sees Jasper and Mabel and finds they've been married and they're living in their own house at that point after a month. And in the final paragraphs of the novel, we're, we're given a bunch of history about May, Mabel and Jasper's future. They eventually, he leaves the military, he becomes a merchant, they move to New York City, and they essentially live happily ever after. They become wealthy, they have several children. Pathfinder occasionally sends Mabel gifts, 
of, of like furs and skins and things. And years later, she sees, I think it's during the American Revolution, she sees an old man named Leatherstocking, who she realizes is Pathfinder. And this sort of takes us narratively to the events of, of the pioneers. So Cooper kind of used this little part to fill out the, these 30 years of time in which we really don't see Leatherstocking. All we really know he does is he continues to live out in, you know, in, in the woods, being a guide, being a hunter, living with Chingachgook, who becomes Christianized. And we know he sends some gifts to Mabel a few times. That's, that's really all we know. Um, maybe in the course of the reading of the Pioneers, a little bit more will be filled out. Thematically, the, more, the, the, the this final part of the novel has a few themes that, that I think are interesting. One, of course, is sacrifice. Pathfinder proved himself willing to make small sacrifices like in throwing the shooting contest and he's been able to prove to be able to risk his life for others and to sacrifice his skills and his efforts to help others that all can be explained kind of as just the job but here he makes really the biggest sacrifice and he does it in any of the novels which well i guess in the deer slayer he, he's willing to risk his life but here he he really risks his future happiness uh, and his and a wife by giving Mabel to his friends. So friendship trumps uh, marriage in this in the, in, the, in this story, at least in, in Pathfinder's decision. Now, Jasper makes the same decision. He also makes the same sacrifice, but Pathfinder, you know, is able to dominate the final chapters and, and make the decision for both of them. Another theme here is passing on to the next generation. Um, very, you know, what I kept thinking about when I read this again was the Meistersingers of Nuremberg, the Wagner opera, uh, in which you have, in, the, in that, if you haven't listened to that opera, I urge you to do it. There's this, a moment in that opera where you have an older man who's thinking about marrying this younger woman, Ava. So it's Hans Sachs is the older man; he's the cobbler, and he he's thinking of winning this winning this contest where if he wins it, he can marry. Ava, the young the young woman. Yet he l realizes that there's another suitor, and this is a a younger knight who's come in, and he's come in with all his old radical ideas of singing. And so it's a singing contest that's going to decide who's going to marry Ava. And at one point he realizes, although he loves Ava and would like to marry her, that he has to give her up to the next younger generation. And this is a very similar scene here. They actually would have been written around the same time. So I don't know if this was there were similar motifs in literature at the time that both were drawing from. But it's, a, it's almost the exact same idea that young should marry the young and the old shouldn't cling on. And, and you know, something has to be passed on to the next generation. It's actually the same with Dunham. Dunham kind of passing on, by dying, passes on his legacy to the next generation as well. So it happens in a couple ways. In the same way, Arrowhead's death allows Dew of June to become a much more free individual. And then another theme we have is mourning. Ed Cooper kills a lot of people in his books, but he doesn't always give us a lot of time for mourning. But each of these novels does have a moment in which characters are mourned. Cora is mourned in Last of Mohicans. Uh, I guess uh, Hutter is mourned. And the Deerslayer, and Hetty too. So you have a couple of scenes of that. 
Here you, you have, I guess, the longest description of a mourning process where Dew of June is mourning for a month. And at the same time, although I don't know how aware of this Dew of June is, Path, Pathfinder's mourning for the loss of, of Mabel. So she, he's, he needs the time as well. It's not just Dew of June who needs the time. So mourning is, is discussed here quite well. So um, my overall thoughts on this novel, I, I really like what Cooper does in The Pathfinder. I, I don't know. I, I think at the end of the series, I'll try to rank them. I, I put Pathfinder fairly high, although I haven't yet finished The Pioneers or even started The Prairie yet. I have was really emotionally touched by this novel. I do have a few complaints about how the plot unfolds. You have about a third of the novel really consists of circles in which the characters, after a long period of conflict and tension, arrive back where they're at. And it's a really, really slow burn in, in a lot of ways. But I love what he did with the love triangle. I think the novel is emotionally very rich, especially I love the character Dew of June. I think what he this is one of the most interesting characters. I don't know if anyone's written about her or said, analyzed her much, but you know, she's as memorable a character of any that Cooper created, at least of the ones I've read so far. In the Deerslayer, you felt uh, the fears of Natty Bumpo, his fear of death, his willingness to face death. In Last of the Mohicans, he, he comes off as much more of a, a Superman type figure like the flawless warrior who never misses who always is on the trail of his enemies and he doesn't really have much of a character arc I don't think in that story he doesn't have a personal arc at all but the real strength in that novel were these other characters like David especially David Cora Duncan Magua yeah and especially Magua they, they come off as much more stronger and richly developed characters than than um, even Uncas then does Hawkeye. But in this novel, Pathfinder has the most direct character arc. As he comes to terms with losing this woman he loves and committing himself to a life on the frontier as a hunter and a guide. And we're not going to meet Natty Bumpo for another 30 years, or actually more than 30 years, I think. So the early 1790s is when The Pioneers is set. But it doesn't really matter because his life is decided in this novel. These events, you know, in the Thousand Islands decide his life for him. All that's needed now is to know how this character will face two big questions. One is the end of his life, which is taken up in the prairie. And the second is, how will he face the end of his world, the world he grew up in, the world he lived in his whole life? And that is the world of the frontier. So the, the big question of the pioneers is, is the destruction of the frontier, right? The replacement of the frontier with a settler society. And what does that mean for people like Natty Bumpo? Um, so... I guess that does it uh, for this episode, and it does it for the Pathfinders. As always, thank you so much for listening to my thoughts on the works of American writers. If you have any of your own comments about this, if you read Pathfinder, if you've you know experienced this novel, if you have any feelings about it, please leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, and we'll be back next time with the beginning of a four-part series on the Pioneers. The Pioneers is set over 30 years after the events of Pathfinder, and there we'll meet Nat Natty Bumpo again, but he'll only as an aged man while the frontier in New York has been transformed into an emerging dynamic settler society. And the, what place does such a world have for someone like Natty Bumpo, who then is going by the name Leatherstockings? And we'll, the answer to that question will, will be given in 
in the next four episodes as we explore the pioneers. Thank you again so much for listening. Let Christian men take heart today, the devil's rule is done. Let no man heed the devil more, for Jesus Christ has come. But hear ye all what angels sing, how Mary made for Jesus King.